thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, just a quick note before we kick off this week's show. I hope you all did your homework and listened to episode 69 of the Jocko podcast as suggested, because this is episode 59 of the Fighter Pilot podcast, and this week, retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Dave Burke joins us to talk in greater detail about his time as a ground forward air controller in Ramadi, Iraq, as part of an elite Marine Corps unit known simply as Anglico. Hit it. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. All right, seriously, folks, if you have not listened to that episode of the Jocko podcast, and it's a commitment at well over three hours long, then you may want to pause the show and go check it out because we are going to leverage off parts of that discussion today as we learn all about the Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company with Chip. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Vincent Aiello. This is episode 59. We're titling it Anglico, and it is a continuation of episode 55 on forward air controllers. Now, you may remember from last episode that our usual co-host, Sunshine, is away on assignment this month, but since I know you don't want to hear me ramble on by myself, we have a guest co-host joining us today, and who better than episode 55 star himself, retired U.S. Navy Captain Dave Culpepper. Chili, welcome back to the show, bud. Hey, Jello. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me back to uh, ramble along with you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're supposed to not be the rambler. I'll be the rambler. <laughs> well, right. I had a great time doing the show with you last time, and I think we had some great discussions. And, uh, boy, Chip uh, really did a great job of adding to all those things that we touched on uh, when you and I talked before. No doubt. Well, before we get to that, though, it's been, let's see, a few episodes since we saw or heard you last. What's new in your world? Oh, well, you know, I'm still working for uh, the same logistics company we talked about when I was on before. Take a little time to fly my own airplane. I have a 1969 uh, Mooney, so I've flown that up and down the East Coast a little oh, bit all right. uh, with my wife and daughter. And of course, uh, you know, you uh, you hooked me up with a couple of your uh, your premier listeners, and I had an opportunity to, uh, to have private phone calls with them. And boy, I'll tell you, those guys are uh, are pretty savvy. They ask pretty smart questions, and it kind of forced me to uh, pause and think back and. Uh, get some gray matter moving that hasn't been very busy in a few years <laughs> well parts of the brain that are devoted to military aviation yeah you know i forgot about that for anyone who's wondering what chili's talking about the upper echelon two tiers on our patreon site have the opportunity to have debriefs every month a 30-minute phone call or skype call and sometimes it's with me sometimes it's with past guests and chili's been kind enough to do a couple of those so yeah that's pretty awesome all right, uh, let's see. Since you were gone, we did the Aviate Harrier, we did the C2 Greyhound, and most recently we did the Eurofighter Typhoon, which was a big hit. 
In fact, we received a lot of feedback on that episode, as we so often do. Many listeners were quick to point out that the Grippens, or Griepens, I've been told, I guess it's pronounced, huh. uh, the Griepens canards do in fact move, just like the typhoons, and that makes sense. It'd be kind of silly if they didn't. We also learned other nations besides Germany have some different weapons they employ that we didn't necessarily cover in that episode, but that's okay. Chili, putting you on the spot, did you get a chance to listen to the uh, typhoon episode? No, I'm afraid not. I uh, can't uh, add any good news to the Typhoon Show, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, no worries. Let's see, what else did we do? Oh, we released an amusing post last month extolling, actually earlier this month in October, uh, extolling the many benefits of call signs. So you can check that out on our website. And we've also started uploading our library of just raw flying videos to our YouTube channel. And a lot of people are responding to those and enjoying that. So you can also go check that out. And then, of course, the big news is, and Chili, you and I are recording this on October 8th, 2019. And this past week, the B-17-909 crashed in Connecticut and killed a handful of people. And that was really tragic. Did you hear about that? Yeah, not only did I hear about it, but it kind of hit close to home, uh, surprisingly. I just happened to be uh, at the same airfield that morning as part of my job. Oh. Uh, yeah, I was there uh, before dark, saw the uh, B-17 sitting on the ramp uh, with a B-24, a B-25, and a, and a P-51. We actually uh, turned around and launched out of there, uh, still uh, under cover of darkness. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, the B-17 crashed just a few hours later, so... Uh, I was pretty shocked to uh, to hear that, having uh, just been there. Wow. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I think you told me before, too, that one of your listeners knew one of the folks on board. Did I remember that correctly? Yeah, listener Chris, his uh, buddy was the co-pilot, and he was killed in the crash, and Chris reached out on Facebook. He was just frustrated with losing people in aviation. It's understandable. I well, yeah. certainly lost my share of folks, and you have, too. And then our teammate Scott, he and his son Cam flew on 909 last year. So, yeah, your words uh, hit close to home are spot on. And that's just, you know, I, I don't even want to really talk about the loss of the irreplaceable aircraft. It's it's the seven, I think it was, folks who lost their lives. And, and that's just, I mean, it sucks all around. Yeah, you're right, of course, to put the uh, the thoughts of the people first. But I will say, you know, and with respect to losing the airplane is uh, – and that's the whole reason the Collings Foundation is there flying those airplanes still is to pay some respect, you know, to the men and women who built those airplanes during a time of war when it was critical that the nation put their best foot forward uh, as a team. Uh, and, of course, the men uh, and women who maintain those airplanes and continue to fly them today, you know, do that to respect as well the, uh, the guys who flew them in combat. So uh, it's certainly fair to, uh, to think about the loss of the airplane, too, because it was important. Yeah. The folks working hard to, uh, to maintain that legacy, I think, is that, that's, some, that's some great value. Yeah, you know, and then that note, too, I'll say, you know, the uh, all three of the gentlemen flying the airplane were, were older, and they were doing it because they loved it. Mm. Well, you know, we sometimes say not a bad way to go, but that certainly doesn't make it any easier for the family. So, all right, so let's move on to some happier subjects. Chili, since we've got you here for today, how about some listener questions? Yeah, you bet. Well, we have two emails and a phone call. Let's start with an email. This one is from Elliot in Brighton in the United Kingdom. And I've been sitting on this one because I was never a squadron commander and you were, so you probably could answer this a little better. Elliot asks, when is it decided that a CAGBird will be painted or repainted? And how is the new scheme decided? And can only the CAG fly it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the second part of that answer is pretty easy. You want to take that one? Oh, yeah. We've discussed that on the show before. No. Uh, anybody can fly that. It depends on if it's available and on the flight deck and on the schedule and loaded for that particular event. Well, then you go out and you hop in it, and it really doesn't matter whose name it has on it, or in this case, possibly a lot of bright paint. Uh, it's always fun to fly your own, although I always thought it was kind of more fun to look over and see my airplane flying next to me because then I could look and say, whoa, that's my name. But no. And take a picture of it. That's right. Yeah. But no, everybody who's available gets to fly the catbird. So, Chili, did you ever have to uh, or get to maybe repaint a catbird in your squadron? Well, I certainly did. So when I was a commanding officer of uh, the Chippies, VFA 195 in Japan, uh, we transitioned from uh, F-18Cs to F-18Es. And being stationed in Japan is kind of unique. You know, we actually had a, a fan club of Japanese locals. And uh, those Japanese locals, when they heard we were going to transition to new airplanes, started sending me pictures, you know, that they had drawn out great detail of what they thought the new Cagbird. Unsolicited. Yeah. Started sending me pictures of what they thought the new Cagbird should look like. All right. Uh, and I had some very talented sailors in a VFA 195 who did the same thing. Uh, and what when those uh, airplanes were finally received, we took kind of uh, the best of uh, various ones of those uh, drawings that folks had made to come up with the uh, the paint scheme uh, for our new Cagbird. Okay. So that's how we did it. I will say that, uh, you know, there is nothing hard and fast in writing. There's no rule about when or how uh, that is done. So it's really kind of up to uh, individual commanders of their squadrons to decide when they're going to change those paint schemes and what they're going to look like. I think you and I were talking about this a little earlier, too. There are some rules. You know, while I couldn't quote you a chapter and verse, you know, how much colored paint is allowed, Mm -hmm. there are some specific rules that we're supposed to live by with those, though I think that most folks uh, probably use a little more colored paint than they should. (laughs) They're more like guidelines, really. (laughs) That's a guideline. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so the Cagbird is understood, though, to have lots of vibrant colors. And of course, there's a whole discussion on whether that's an issue in combat or not. And then the rest of your fleet can have a little bit of color, but not quite as much, of course. Well, generally, the rest of your fleet uh, is uh, supposed to have only three colors on it, various uh, shades of uh, gray, in fact, uh, that, oh, are okay. in the, that are in the book. And of course, the Cagbird, you know, if we were to go into combat, uh, the guys could have that painted down to a tactical gray pretty quickly. Uh, that's true. All right. Fair enough. Why don't we take a phone call next? All right. My name is Austin. I'm from the uh, Baton Rouge area of Louisiana. So our local hometown Navy squadron, if you will, uh, is VFA 204, the River Rattlers, uh, stationed at Bell Chase, right outside of New Orleans. They are a Naval Reserve squadron, and their task is adversary red air. I noticed this was different from the Navy squadrons, for example, at Nellis that are aggressor squadrons. My question is, what differences, if any, are there between adversary squadrons and aggressor squadrons? I'm a huge fan of the show. I love what y'all do. Keep it up. Thanks. All right, Chili. So I have to admit, I get called out on this on Instagram all the time because adversary, aggressor, I don't know. To me, they're synonymous. But uh, do you know a difference? How, How should we answer Austin here? Uh, well, that's a great question. You know, in his question, he uh, refers to uh, aggressor. He talks about uh, Nellis. So he may be referring to Air Force squadrons out there, Nellis, who are officially aggressor squadrons. Of course, uh, VFA 204, the River Rattlers, aren't officially an aggressor or a uh, adversary squadron. They're a U.S. Navy Reserve F-18 squadron. Their primary mission is to be prepared to deploy uh, in combat. So they have the, tr- the same readiness requirements that an active duty squadron does. 
But since that's not what they're most likely going to get called to do, what they normally, what they often do, I should say, on a regular basis is they support the fleet and training. So they end up doing the adversary role. But you'll never see that officially in any piece of paper that they are an adversary squadron because they're, like I said, a reserve F-18 squadron. So, yeah, I would agree with you that, uh, you know, uh, at least from our perspective, adversary and aggressor are basically synonymous. Two different ways to say the same thing effectively. All right. Good question, Austin. All right. Finally, let's take an email from Terry in Singapore. And he wants to know, in the opening scene of Top Gun, Maverick's wingman Cougar gets cold feet after a MiG-28 encounter and cannot confidently fly and land his F-14 on the carrier. In all your years of flying, have you heard of or know of incidents where naval pilots have trouble staying mentally firm to land their jets, especially during tricky situations such as a storm at sea? Chili, the listeners of the show who have been around a while are familiar with my night in the barrel. It was one of my very first at sea periods where I wasn't a student, but in the fleet called the Nugget. And then, of course, uh, for me, much later as a department head off the coast of Australia, we had plus or minus 20 feet surges on the carrier. And uh, it was tough, but it wasn't necessarily in my mind. It was the conditions, and it was all I could do to stay with it. But I had my proverbial night in the barrel, and then I had another rough night, as we all did that night, trying to get aboard when the conditions were rough. But uh, for me, I just tried to stick with it, but my night in the barrel ended up back on the beach. Do you ever have any issues getting aboard? Oh, well, I, uh, I had my own night in the barrel, uh, I'll concede, yeah, off of uh, Puerto Rico in, uh, in pretty heavy swells. I can actually remember on one pass, clearly seeing the screws of the ship out of the water. Oof. Yeah, and any naval aviator knows if you're looking at the screws of the ship, where's the airplane going? It's going where you're looking. That's right. <laughs> so needless to say, I didn't land on that pass. But, you know, uh, a couple of things come to mind uh, with that question. You know, one is, based on your story and mine, you know, there are no quitters. We do a pretty good job of, uh, of weeding out people who quit uh, and would quit in a stressful situation. And uh, you know, after your first pass, you didn't quit. You came back around and you gave it your best on the second. And if you had a third or a fourth, you gave it your best on each and every one of them, as I did. And that, mm-hmm. as I have seen everybody do uh, in my fleet experience. Uh, so there's probably a, a little bit of Hollywood in that portion of the movie. It says, yeah, there are, there are certainly stressful times. Uh, out there trying to land airplanes, but there are no quitters, uh, at least none that I've experienced in my life in naval aviation. Right. Uh, so everybody gets it out there and gives it their best on each pass. But it does remind me of another story. Uh, when I was commanding officer uh, via VF-195 in Japan, we actually had a guy whose wingman flying alongside, I'll back up just a step, uh, it was two F-18s flying at night, and the flight lead realized, talking to his wingman on the radio, that something wasn't right. He just didn't sound right. Hmm. Uh, and he talked to him a little bit and determined that he was hypoxic. So he talked him through procedures that he would have done had his mental faculties been 100%, but he was hypoxic, so he was behind. But uh, he was conscious enough that he listened to the commands of his flight lead, and his flight lead got him kind of squared away again and down to an altitude where he knew he was okay, but could tell, talking to him, that he still wasn't quite right. And later on, we determined that what, in fact, he had was a decompression sickness. Oh, gosh. So, so in fact, he wasn't still quite right. So his flight lead uh, put him on his wing, took him down, uh, and flew him on his wing down to uh, three-quarters of a mile on center line on ice slope uh, and dropped him off, what we would say, dropped him off on the ball. Mm-hmm. Just gave him that last uh, three-quarters of a mile to fly uh, on his own, which he did without incident. 
uh, landed safely uh, on board the boat. Nothing exciting. It was uh, nothing like uh, the scene in Top Gun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we took him to medical after that and I ended up flying him off the ship uh, back to uh, Japan so he could go to a hospital and get put in a recompression chamber because he did, in Ooh. fact, have decompression sickness. Wow. Did he end up making a full recovery later? Yeah, he did. Uh, oh, good. He's, uh, he's still active duty today. Oh, outstanding. Well, that's serious business. And man, it's hard enough. I don't know about you, Chili. It was hard enough for me with all my faculties. <laughs> if I sounded on the radio like I usually sound the first night in port after a couple of libations, then yeah, I would uh, I would not sound too good, I'm sure. So, Well, really uh, good on his flight lead, too. Uh, his flight lead is clearly paying attention and uh, it didn't ignore those symptoms of something not being right. He took action and it really made, the, made all the difference in the world. Outstanding. Yeah, well, good for him. Hopefully he was recognized for that, but that's the right thing to do. So excellent. All right. Well, thanks for helping out with the questions. I find that if we don't do a couple every episode, they start to build up. So got a couple knocked out. I think we should get to the interview. Now, you had a chance to listen to this, and I think you told me you also listened to the Jocko podcast. Any previews or lead-ins before we get to Chip here? Uh, yeah, you know, I did listen to, uh, to Jocko's podcast with uh, Chip. And uh, I'll just emphasize the point you made at the beginning here, which is uh, I really would encourage folks to listen to that uh, before you listen to this episode. Jock is a great uh, interviewer, and Chip gives a great description of several parts of naval aviation uh, in that discussion. He actually gives a good uh, description of his, uh, his upbringing uh, and how he got into naval aviation. His growth into uh, Top Gun, going through the class of Top Gun and being a Top Gun instructor, which I think are just fantastic. And, and even having done all those things, listen to him tell the story, I felt like I learned some things uh, and certainly learned to characterize some things that I had, I had been through. So that's a, definitely worth someone's time to listen to that. And then, of course, you know, we, you and I talked about uh, FAC A primarily in the episode I joined you with before. And uh, Chip's going to take that on to the, to the next part of that, which is FAC, being on the ground, face to face, so to speak, with the enemy and uh, show you that perspective, which I think is fabulous. No doubt. Well, let's let Chip tell us all about it. All right, on the show today is one of four gentlemen who is repeatedly requested by name here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and that is retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Dave Burke. Chip, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. Uh, it's good to be here. Tell your listeners, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm stoked <laughs> to be on. Well, you're in good company. You're up there with Mob, uh, although he's yeah. not quite ready to come tell his story yet, as well as um, Duke Cunningham. That's some good company. Yeah. I don't quite yeah. make that bar, but right. uh, I'm happy to be around. Excellent. Well, good, man. We are at your home here in beautiful Carlsbad, looking out the window at the ocean. You got a pretty good gig here going, man. Yeah, life is pretty sweet, man. I'm happy <laughs> to be back in San Diego. Well, as we said in the lead into this, hopefully everyone has done their homework and listened to you on episode, I believe it's 69 of the Jocko podcast. But just for anyone who didn't get a chance to do that, let's start with you. Where are you from? What did you do in the military? And where'd you go to school? And what are you doing now? Yeah, certainly uh, Jocko Podcast 69 is a good place to start. It's a pretty long podcast, so I'm impressed if they did all of their homework. Uh, <laughs> but to kind of cover the high points, I actually grew up around here. I moved to San Diego when I was real little. I uh, lived there till I was about five, but kind of the first real memory I have moving up to Orange County, lived in the town called El Toro. And uh, as most of you probably know, there used to be a Marine base out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so about five, I moved out uh, right underneath the flight line at El Toro, watching back then. So this is, you know, in the mid-70s, mm -hmm. you know, F-4s, A-4s, A-6s, those kind of airplanes. Stayed there all through, went to El Toro High School, went to college there at Cal State Fullerton. So from five till about 20, I lived in El Toro. 
you know, going to the air show every year, got in my blood. And probably by the time I was in high school, I kind of knew I wanted to be a Marine fighter pilot, but ended up going to college out there, graduating and uh, earning my commission. Got commissioned at the El Toro O Club. All right. Yeah, back in the day uh, in 94 and then started my career from there. And just give us some high points on the career. So you yeah, the basic school, yeah, yeah. picked up pilot training. You bet. So I wanted to be a pilot, but the only opportunity I had to get contracted at the time was as a ground officer. So I uh, went to OCS and I went to the basic school as a contracted ground officer, which meant that I was going to go do any number of different jobs or I wasn't guaranteed to go to flight school. But at the basic school, got pretty lucky, finished high enough in my class to get one of a few air contracts. So I picked up flight training out of the basic school. And then went down to Pensacola with the rest of all the the Navy and the Marine Corps pilot candidates. Uh, did standard training out there, you know, Pensacola for API. They were yeah. calling it back then. I think it's AI now. But right. did Whiting Field for T-34s, picked up jets, did half my time between Meridian and Kingsville, uh, intermediate and advanced, and the T-2 Buckeye, and then the T-45 Goshawk, which at the time was brand new, right. and then got winged out of Kingsville in the T-45 in 97 and picked up Hornets and, believe it or not, got stationed back at El Toro. So I was the last class to go through F-18 training in El Toro as they were shutting the base down. All the Navy guys had left Miramar. Right. All the Marines had moved from El Toro down to Miramar to stand up Marine Corps Station Miramar. And believe it or not, man, I flew the last F-18 sortie out of El Toro. They literally closed the doors behind me. I was going uh, to carrier training. <laughs> as so, a student? As a student. Wow. Flew the last F-18. Had the local news with me there. Uh, kind of a cool story that I grew up out there. Uh, fell in love with flying in the Marine Corps, living mm-hmm. there, and then flew the last F-18 sortie out of Miramar, or uh, I'm sorry, out of El Toro mm-hmm. on my way to Miramar, yep. and they closed the base behind me there, and then went on to my career uh, as a pilot in the Marine Corps, uh, flying Hornets. Okay. So come on, don't hold back on All us. Right. Uh, you did a, you did a jail tour. Yeah. So I, I, you know, finished up training in the Hornet as a student. Ended up in a fleet squadron there. The Black Knights was the squadron, and they were a carrier squadron. So I actually ended up very similar to you mm-hmm. in an air wing uh, as a Marine. One of uh, one squadron on Air Wing Nine back in the John C. Stennis, and did a couple of deployments there. Went to Iraq and went to Afghanistan as a first tour JO in the Hornet. In between those two deployments, 2000 2001, I went to Top Gun as a student. So my first tour is kind of probably similar to yours and and somewhat common to guys that end up on the weapon school track is I did two full workups, two full cruises, you know, a bunch of traps, time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then time as a student at Top Gun. And then when I finished that first tour, I went up to Top Gun and started my instructor tour there. You you probably remember this. You were an instructor, not only when I was a student, but actually you were still on the staff when I first got there. I remember your farewell pretty vividly. So you were leaving as I was getting there. (laughs) Uh, High five, huh? Yeah. Fall of 02, kind of passing the torch off. I did three years as a Top Gun. IP. Ended up leaving as the training officer, which is cool as a Marine no doubt. to be the training officers. Kind of get to run Top Gun, which oh, is yeah. pretty neat. That you know, Obviously, the CO is in charge, but the training officer, for those of you that don't know, it's a pretty cool job because the CO, the commander, kind of gives you top cover but lets you kind of run the show there. Yeah. It was a really neat experience. Mm-hmm. Toyed with the idea of getting out, stayed in, volunteered to be a Ford air controller, which I think we'll probably talk about more a today. Went to Iraq in a city called Ramadi uh, and did a ground fact tour, a pretty hardcore fact tour there. Toyed with the idea of getting out again. Uh, went back to the fleet and did a uh, OPSO XO tour. So pretty early on, got my major department head at the 12, 13 year mark and was an XO on deployment at the 12, 13 year mark. And I was thinking, all right, now I'm definitely getting out. I've done everything I wanted to do. <laughs> then got the nod, uh, found out that I had got selected for the F-22 Raptor exchange. So oh. the Marine Corps decided to work in exchange with the Air Force to go fly F-22s. Magically, I picked up that billet. And instead of getting out, 
I transitioned to the F-22, spent almost four years as an exchange pilot with the Air Force, ended up getting trained out of Tyndall and then being based permanently at Nellis and flying Raptors okay. for almost four years at Nellis. And believe it or not, left one of my last jobs there was as as a Marine, was the, the commander of the Raptor division at Nellis. So I got to command an F-22 <laughs> division as a Marine, which was an unbelievable experience. Uh, high regard for the Air Force there and, and obviously loved the Raptor. And then when I was leaving Nellis and finishing up my Raptor exchange, I got picked up to be the first operational pilot to command the Marine Corps' first F-35 squadron. So we stood up the F-35B at Eglin. Uh, I switched from the Raptor to the F-35 Lightning, flew the Lightning for almost three years as the first non-test pilot in the world to fly it. So back-to-back fifth-gen tours was really cool. At the end of that tour, toyed with the idea of getting out. Uh, the Marine Corps sent me to Johns Hopkins. I did an academic fellowship, so I basically was a civilian for about a year and a half working on a couple of master's degrees at Johns Hopkins, went to the Pentagon, and then I actually, <laughs> right before I uh, I had to make the commitment of staying in as a colonel and going back to the F-35, I jumped ship. And then uh, I am retired. I have been for almost three years now. And how many years of service? 23. That's basically the, the fastest I can kind of summarize, 23 <laughs> years. It was a pretty good run, man. I would say so. All right, so let me summarize this, and I'm going to try to hide my disgust. Right? All right, Water Walker all through, closes El Toro, picks up F-18s, goes to Top Gun, training officer, which is a big deal, by the way, for anyone, let alone a Marine. And I think you might have skipped something. What else did you fly at Top Gun? I did skip that, man. Yeah, I, I was in the first class to get the F-16 qualification. <laughs> so I showed up there. They just started sending guys uh-huh. to training. So me and a couple of guys went down to uh, Tucson International, got our yep. F-16 quals, and I was dual qualified at Top Gun flying both the Viper and the Hornet, which okay. was pretty sweet. So F-18, F-16, F-22, F-35, <laughs> Ground Hero and Ramadi. Dude, what haven't you done? <laughs> yeah, man, look, I, we were joking about this before. If I tried to recreate that career, I couldn't do it in a thousand tries. Just too many things, too many forces at play that were beyond my control that just fell into place. You know, I remember flying the Viper thinking, nobody gets to fly two jets. Like, how lucky was I? The Raptor was just sort of like hitting a home run, and I just couldn't believe it. And then to go right to the F-35, it was just, look, man, I can't take a lot of credit for it. I was certainly in the right place at the right time, but what a what well, an awesome career. I'm going to refute that by one of my favorite sayings, which is, good things happen to good people, and you're clearly getting it done. And that, I think probably as much as anything parlays into your success in Iraq, which we'll talk a lot about today, yeah. but also where you are now. So can you tighten us up on that real quick? Yeah. So I, I left the Marine Corps a few years back and one of the opportunities that immediately presented itself was to go work with two of the guys that I spent a lot of time in Iraq with two SEALs, a guy named Jocko Willink. We mm-hmm. talked about his podcast earlier and Leif Babin, who I had met in Ramadi as a foreign air controller and just happened to work very closely with their SEAL team and did a whole bunch of missions with them. It was a really incredible time, incredible experience. But when I left my factory in 2006, I certainly never thought I'd cross paths with them. But they started a leadership development company several years ago. And in late 2015, they wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, which was very well received. It's been massively impactful and influential. And about the time I was getting out, the company that they had been working with for a while that they started was really starting to grow uh, and really starting to have some broader impact. And honestly, Leif just reached out. He said, hey, man we'd love to have you on the team. What do you think? Kind of gave me the quick nickel tour of what was going on. And it, these guys are legit. The book was legit. And I sort of, without much real research, just said, okay. And I left and joined Echelon Front. And I've been with them for almost three years now as a leadership instructor, working with Leif and Jocko. And it has been incredible, man. Uh, it's an yeah. unbelievable company. What Jocko and Leif have done have been fantastic. And I get to be a part of that and, and take my leadership experiences and the lessons that we teach in those books and, and teach them to companies all over the world, man. Right. It's been awesome. Well, you guys are crushing it. And I think there's a real need. I don't have to tell you, but for the listeners, 
for the experiences that guys like you and, and Jocko and all them have had and to parlay that into business. Now, it's not life and death, but there's still a lot of transferable skills there. And it sounds like you guys are crushing it. Everything Jocko's doing is just striking gold. Yeah, Jocko's, uh, he's the real deal. He's legitimate. What you see is what you get. He's one of a kind. And like you said, we get to take those lessons Look, they apply. And sometimes it's not life and death, but actually some companies it is. Yeah, yeah. And what we kind of realize is that, you know, the military can be a unique place, but the reality, man, is just people. It's just guys like That's you right. and me. They're just normal people like any other job. And, and the lessons translate perfectly because it's people. Right. And that's what leadership is about. So yeah. I hit the jackpot uh, yet again. The mission <laughs> might be a little different, but again, it's the people that are the yep. common. Yep. You absolutely. got it, man. All right, Chip. Well, man, you and I could probably spend hours talking about <laughs> any number of subjects. But as we alluded to at the end of our facts episode with Dave Culpepper, Chili, I think yeah. he was also on the staff when you got there, wasn't he? He was, yeah, okay. similar time. And so I, I knew yeah. Chili uh, while I was there, and I listened to the podcast with him, okay. with you. So cool right. to hear him. Feels like it was yesterday. Obviously, it's been a little bit of time, but yeah. it was cool to hear him again. He was on the staff and certainly yep. influential for me up there as well. Yep. Yeah, we're all getting older and doing yep. other things now, but absolutely. So, so you, yeah, you listen to that. And I think what we'll do today is we'll focus on your time in Iraq with an organization yeah. known as Anglico, which you can explain. But again, if people did their homework, they're familiar. Yeah. And then I just want to kind of dissect this and maybe even, if you're willing, kind of do almost a simulated attack where sure. you're the guy on the ground on the dude in the air and we'll see if we can't give the folks a flavor for it we did something similar to this with uh, mongo Mongillo. he was um he came on the show and talked about his shoot down yeah and we literally dissected the com and people really liked it so we'll take a stab at that so for sure let's start off with anglico now what is that and how does that tie into chili's episode yeah, so for those that listen to Chili's episode, he did such a good job just explaining really all the different components of what a JTAC was, what a FAC is, and then obviously more relevant for his conversation, what a FAC A was, mm -hmm. and how challenging and demanding that is. He talked about, I think the question is, what's the hardest mission he had in this amazing multi-role machine we flew, the Hornet and then the Super Hornet, and that FAC A mission, man, it, it's really tough, and those guys did an incredible job. Uh, so I enjoyed listening to the podcast. My experience as a fac was, I was a ground fac. And so when I was leaving Top Gun and kind of contemplating getting out, one of the things that was sort of nagging me in the back of my mind was, you know, I joined the Marine Corps and I, I loved the Marine Corps. I wanted to be a Marine. And I'd really spent all my time doing basically in the Naval aviation side. So all of flight school, Navy and Marine Corps together, it's, you know, it's run by the Navy. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up in an air wing. So I spent four years essentially working with the Navy and look, I'm the biggest advocate of Naval aviation of anybody. I loved my time with the Navy. You know, there's some inner service rivalries, but at the end of the day, there's nothing like carrier aviation, nothing. I spent time with all the services, my Navy brethren who are out there every day on and off the carrier, what they do, uh, the men and women out there to make it happen are, are second to none. And then I went to Top Gun. Top Gun is again, it has, it's unrivaled what happens at Top Gun. But at the end of, you know, kind of the first nine, 10 years of my career, I had spent all my time with the Navy. And I just had this sense of wanting to do something that was very unique to the Marine Corps mm -hmm. before I got out. And that was kind of my big master plan is I'll go do one more thing that was very much green, very much Marine. And then I can leave not ever looking back thinking, hey, I didn't really get a, a genuine Marine Corps experience. So I volunteered when I left Top Gun. I was actually supposed to go back to a squadron to be an OPSO in Japan, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something different, so I volunteered for a billet called Anglico. Anglico is just an acronym. It stands for Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And really the design of Anglico is when you have battle space that's owned by the Marine Corps, so terrain that literally is occupied and owned by Marine but has other units in there, so Army units, 
the Marine Corps and the Army operate differently. And you know this, your listeners probably do. As much as it seems like the military is the same, the four services might as well be four different countries sometimes. There are really a lot of differences. The Army uses air different than the Marine Corps. And so the Marine Corps has this unit called Anglico, which literally operates as a liaison between different units operating the battle space, whether they're using naval guns, so Navy doctrine is different than the Marine Corps, or maybe Army Air, or Army Ground and Marine Air. They need some conduit to understand doctrine on both sides, and that's what Anglico is. So the irony in all this is that I joined Anglico to be a Marine fac and ended up being attached to an Army unit on the ground because the Army didn't know doctrinally how to employ Marine Corps air. So the Marine Corps owned the battle space, Mm -hmm. the Army is operating in the Marine Corps battle space, and the air assets overhead were Marine assets. And you needed a a liaison between, and that was me. So my one chance to be a real Marine, I spent it all with the Army on the ground. (laughs) Until the SEAL showed up. Until the SEAL showed up. So, But the mission there was to employ Marine aviation, and I used, at the time, it was Hornets and Harriers, Hueys and Cobras on the employment side, and then obviously CH-46s and 53s on Casabacs and some other things that I did, all designed to support the Army, and then utilize my experience, you know, I had combat experience in the air, and I was able to take all that and end up spending a lot of time on the ground using air assets to support the Army and, and the SEALs in what ended up being one of the biggest battles of the last 15 years was the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. Yeah. So here you are, a pilot, pulled yeah. out of the cockpit. Now, granted, you're a Marine and every Marine a rifleman, so you've been through some basic training as far as TBS goes and, yes. and, and small squad tactics, but you're really like kitted up now like a foot soldier. Big time. And you're out there getting so, dirty and, and doing what they're doing, huh? So every Marine's okay. a rifleman. We all go to TBS specifically for that, but yeah. uh, I'll remind you and everybody else that in 2006, when I was preparing to go on this deployment, the last time I had fired a rifle was October of 1994 at the basic school. So <laughs> I was pretty rusty as a rifleman. But no, it, it, look, man, you go to the training, it's back there. It takes a little time to come back out, but I had a little bit of experience. And Anglico at the time was a pretty high-speed unit, and uh, we had really good gear, really sharp Marines, really solid guys. We had JTACs on the artillery and infantry side, young enlisted Marines that were really solid. You know, I was kind of in over my head in some ways, but in other ways, I was in a good spot to try to make an impact. I had a lot of experience, and it ended up paying big dividends while I was there. Cool. All right, so let's talk about some of the training that you went through now. Yeah. Chili talked to us about JTAC training, Joint Terminal Attack Controller. Mm-hmm. So you did that. Was there something specific that you then did for your Anglico part Yeah. So we all go to what's called TACP School Tactical Air Control Party. So any FAC or JTAC, anybody that's going to control aircraft goes to the school. Mm-hmm. And we're all the same, whether you're a pilot, officer, uh, JTAC, enlisted JTAC. The training is very similar. Okay. So we all went through that. And that kind of gives you your initial qualification to control air. Understand what a nine line is, what the aircraft capabilities are, and how to communicate with them to doctrinally employ them as a tactical asset, whether it's ISR or dropping bombs or whatever it is. But really for Anglico, our mission, once I left regular TACP training and got my qualification, then I was connected to a unit that had a very specific mission. And this mission, for me, because I ended up very quickly knowing that I was going to go to Ramadi, there's a very urban component to that. And we were starting to get some really, at the time, brand new software. We had something called a Rover, which now is... Ubiquitous. Yeah, but at the time, we were like one of the first units to ever get it, where I was now able to, using software and hardware, connect to the aircraft overhead and see in real time the screens that they were looking at for their infrared systems. I had a repeated version of that. I could control. So I had to learn how to communicate and teach my guys how to communicate while looking at the rover feed from the aircraft, which was, as a pilot, it's very helpful because I understood that. If you're not a pilot, it's really hard to understand what you're looking at because it's all new. And something else that we had 
that was brand new was something was called Piss Off, a Precision Strike Suite uh, Special Operations Forces, which again at the time was brand new. Okay. Uh, I think I was one of the first units that ever had it, and I had to learn how to use was essentially a pair of binoculars connected to a computer, take different depictions of, of the same target, kind of overlay these two chips, we called them these two different photographs, and get precision coordinates to take high quality targeting information and pass it to the aircraft so they could use GPS weapons or find targets and things like that. So things that are, like you said, ubiquitous now. In 2006, this was cutting edge stuff and nobody had done it before. So I had to learn and get trained in all this equipment if I was going to be able to do my job in this really dense urban populated area, buildings and and a whole bunch of different things that that you don't really see at TACP school because it was all new to us. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty neat to see that. Now looking back, I'm a dinosaur. People laugh at me now, but you know, I was one of the first guys out of the gate doing sure, all this stuff. Sure. Explain for us very briefly. I mean, you and I are familiar, and probably a lot of the aviators listening are, but, you know, let's think of maybe a Cold War scenario. The hordes are coming across yeah. through the gap, and our forces are going to meet in the middle. That's different than an urban environment. What's so much more challenging about urban? Let's yeah. start with the, uh, the first scenario, if you would. What I grew up training with was, at least mindset-wise, was something very different. You know, what we were expecting, mm-hmm. you know, these large swaths of land, big caps and things like that. It's and even clear where the enemy is. Yeah. Right. And even, you know, looking back at Desert Storm, you know, there's very clear, no pun intended, but very clear lines in the sand, places where we would operate. Uh, we had sort of control of the skies and had very dominant uh, equipment and urban combat is just, it's very different. Now, obviously this is stuff we've done in the past, looking at Vietnam and, and even in, in Europe and places like that in World War II. It's not to say that it had never happened before, but it had been a long time since certainly me or, or really the forces in general had considered urban counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. So now what you got is, you know, a place like Ramadi is pretty crazy. It's probably three to four miles east to west and maybe the same north to south. So mm-hmm. I don't know, 15 square miles. You got 400,000 civilians living in there. Jeez. It's crazy. Yeah. And inside of that densely urbanly populated area, you've got three or 4,000 insurgents that look like civilians. They walk around That's like right. civilians. Really, really hard to figure it out. And then if you do have an opportunity where you can recognize, hey, that is definitely a hostile person that you want to engage, they might be standing around around 20 civilians or inside a building that's three stories and you want to get into one particular window, right. all of a sudden these things that we talk about like collateral damage and just paying attention to the surroundings, it's much more complex and much more challenging. The use of air can be, use of any anything, not just air, but any piece of ordinance because the considerations of what's going on in an urban environment make things really tough. And look, you know this too, in an airplane, you get up 10,000 feet and you look down what looks like a really key feature for me on the ground is, you know, the color of a building or some sort of clear indication of what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. At 10,000 feet, you can't see any of that. They all look, <laughs> it, it looks like a bunch of squares on the ground. Right. Right. And there's literally tens of thousands of them. So the relationship between the pilot in the airplane and the FAC or the JTAC in communicating to make sure we know exactly which target we're looking at mm-hmm. can be pretty tough, pretty demanding. And I was controlling air, you know, launching Hellfires off Cobras into windows on particular stories and buildings, like really challenging stuff that looking back, I mean, the professionalism, the capability of those pilots is just off the charts, what they were able to do. But as a fact, you have to be able to communicate effectively so you don't make a mistake because you make a mistake in an urban environment, dozens of civilians are going to get wounded or killed and it can really set back your mission tremendously. And so it was, it's like something I'd never seen before. It was a unique environment. Well, warfare has really changed in that regard because, you know, beginning with a little bit in Desert Storm, but mostly in the wars in the last 20 years, it's what you just said. I mean, there's hospitals, there's mosques and other religious facilities around and there's, again, civilians everywhere and it's very difficult to tell. So I can see where that would be a, a very dynamic scenario. It was. Plus it's changing nonstop. And from 
the point of view of, like you said, at 10,000 feet, well, I'm not just hovering up there. I'm moving yeah. at hopefully about 300 knots. Yeah. And so the perspective is constantly changing. It could be day or night. It could be smoke, haze. I could be looking through my flare. And it is a difficult problem. And that is why I presume they take guys like you out of the cockpit and put you down there. And what I wonder is, when you went back to the airplane, I mean, let's not talk necessarily about your perspective on the ground, and I think you already alluded to that, but what happened when you went back to the airplane? Did you have a newfound appreciation yeah. for it? I'm glad you asked that. That was something that was totally unexpected and totally illuminating. Mm. Certainly the fact tour was an incredible experience, but when right. I left that and went right back to the Hornet, right back to Miramar, back to the same squadron actually, being in the cockpit at what you just described, 300 knots, 10,000 feet, flying overhead, doing you know your next cast mission as a pilot, the perspective is totally different. The best thing that ever happened to me as a pilot in terms of supporting ground operations was being a FAC. Mm -hmm. More importantly, I was able to understand how challenging it was for the guys on the ground communicating to us. And I remember kind of reflecting, I had times in my career that I'd be in the air trying to support, you know, in training and whatnot and being frustrated because the FAC couldn't explain it to me in a way that made sense to me. And I would, you know, be frustrated and not know and not knowing what's going on. And now the roles have been reversed and then reversed again. I'm back into a cockpit, recognizing how hard that was. And it made me a better pilot. It certainly made me a better instructor to explain to other pilots right. the challenges that their JTACs and FACs are dealing with. My world opened up, my aperture opened up tremendously. And to be quite honest with you, man, certainly when I left Top Gun, I, I didn't think I had too much more to learn in an airplane. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. Man, mm -hmm. uh, being a fact and then getting back after that made me realize just how much more there was. And that was really helpful for me to be patently just better in the airplane because I yeah. understood things that I didn't know before. Yeah. I like to say that I don't think you're ever done learning in no. the business. I mean, there's constantly something new. And I think to your point, that is precisely why we have exchange tours. Uh, Marines going to the Air Force like you did. Yeah. Um, foreign forces coming to the United States and us going to other places. And then the idea is that you see it from that different perspective. And of course, we could wax poetic on that forever. But the point going to have to do another podcast at some point because you're bringing up all these really <laughs> good subjects. I mean, I, yeah. I I agree with you completely. I did basically two exchanges with the Navy, if you think about it. Yeah. Four years on carrier, series of Top Gun. That's a Navy exchange, if you know, for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. I did almost four years with the Air Force. And then I did a year with the Army. And as a Marine in charge of 501, we led all the UK training. So all the UK pilots and airplanes were in my squadron. And what you said, everybody does it differently and they all do it so well and they have unique reasons for why they do it. Mm -hmm. And the amount of things that I learned from being with the other services, did I could talk for days on that. Yeah. They're awesome. It's certainly worth exploring at some point because you're right. It's a hugely valuable to kind of keep realizing you have so much more to learn. And because somebody's different, doesn't mean they're wrong. It probably yeah. means that you have something to learn. Uh, well, which is really good. You're a busy dude. It's taken us several months, by the yeah. way, to get this figured out, but I'm going to hold you to it. All right, let's do it. No, uh, several episodes, the listeners will remark, whether it's on YouTube or social media or somewhere, like, get him back on the show. Yeah. So uh, you're just a short ride up the coast here, man. We'll have to, uh, For we'll sure. have to definitely do that. So I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts yep. of controlling. First off, let's talk a little bit about what's going on on the ground. I mean, you're kitted up. Uh, you, for all intent and purposes, look like a regular soldier, but mm -hmm. I'm guessing there's some special gear. You've already talked a little bit about the binoculars. I think yep. you call it the piss off and, and the rover, but what else do you have with you that's unique from just another soldier? I don't know what else to call it, a Marine, I guess. The biggest thing that we brought in as a person on the ground that was unique to the other soldiers, look, we all had rifles, right. you know, for the most part, and we all had, you know, our, I had a pistol and a rifle that I carried and I utilized those things from time to time. 
But what actually made me really unique was the suite of communications equipment that I had. I had everything from something called uh, an M biter, you know, like a little, I think it was like a PRC 148. You might have to QA that. Real small, like handheld, almost like a walkie talkie size, little portable radio to satellite communications, VHF, UHF, you know, between my vehicle, my radio operator, and my personal equipment. We had comms that could communicate in almost every waveform that was available. And it was critical because I even carried a sat phone. And there were times that I literally called back to the talk, the COC, in a firefight because the sat phone was the only thing that worked. And what really set us apart from our counterparts in Ramadi, in Anglico, was we had the ability to communicate in virtually every means available and with equipment that simply wasn't accessible to anybody else on the battlefield. And that was hugely helpful because I could communicate to almost anybody anywhere at any time. If I had my kit working correctly and I did my job and my radio operator and I were working well together, mm-hmm. like I said, between the vehicle, between him and I and the equipment we had, we could communicate with anybody. And mm-hmm. that was our job was to be yeah. able to communicate. And that's what set us apart. So today's Thursday as we're recording this. Yeah. Let's say you're about to go out on an op later today or if that's not a good example tomorrow. How does this whole process even start? We on the ship, as you recall, have the air tasking order. Yep. But when you and your SEAL buddies like, hey, we've got something right now, or hey, we're going out tomorrow, how does that, I mean, we don't have to get into too much minutia here. No, it's a good question. Where does that process begin for ultimately me to show up and support you? And I'm going to break this down very simply. It's much more nuanced than I'm going to describe, but I would put it in kind of two bins. I would do it in the pre-planned or the reactive bin. Okay. Now, again, and some of your listeners have a lot of experience. They're going to realize that there's more to it than that. But if you just want to think of it sort of simplistically... We would have a lot of missions that we had scheduled. You and I are going to go out uh, three days from now or five days from now or even two weeks from now on some sort of very planned, coordinated mission. Mm-hmm. And because I knew what we we're going to do, where it was going to be, what we we're going to do, and I'd done a bunch of planning and I had it on the counter, I can now coordinate aircraft well in advance and it, through something called a JTAR, which is basically a request. I think can, it's, can I interrupt? Could yeah. you also ask, since you have experience for specific weapons? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And so what you would typically have is these aircraft would have what called SCL, standard conventional loads. Right. They always showed up with, you know, a one JDAM, two LG, uh, GBU-12s gun and a uh, Hellfire or Maverick or depending on the platform. But if we knew where we were going and what we were doing, I could say, hey, GPS is much better for us. Can you bias to more GPS, or in this case, GPS isn't good, we want laser, or, hey, I really need you to focus on forward firing like rockets or things like that. So if we knew where we were going, part of the mission planning would be to optimize that. And we could coordinate with the aircraft through this thing called a JTAR, which I think you had about a three days prep time. And then their ordinance and their operations team would set it up that they showed up exactly when and where with the right ordinance. But also what that allowed me to do was build something we called a GRG, a little grid reference guide. It was basically just a map that I could share with the pilots and say, hey, you know, tomorrow night we're going to go out. Jello, you're in the airplane. I'm going to be on the ground. But we have talked on the phone or through a little, you know, basically internet chat service that we called Merck that we could communicate. And we have a, a map, a common reference point, and we could come up with code words and street names and we could build this whole thing out. And mm-hmm. what that was really good was we were on the same sheet of music. More than likely, we know each other. I was a Marine working with a Marine aircraft. I knew personally half the Hornet and Harrier pilots <laughs> flying overhead. Mm-hmm. I might not have known the Cobra guys quite as well because I was a fixed wing there, rotor wing, but I guarantee you somebody in every squadron I went to TBS with, I was at flight school with, right. I deployed, whatever. We all knew each other. So there was this really great sense of personal connection. And when we did these pre-planned missions and I submitted JTAR for aircraft times, locations, I could sequence when they came and went, we could work tanker plans, we could basically cover the whole thing. And you knew 
at least what the sheet music was like. Now, there was always going to be changes, and th- nothing ever goes as planned, but we had done a bunch of coordination, and more often than not, you came really well prepared. We had done a bunch of briefings, and you could provide plan support, and you knew what, what our game plan was, and even reacting to changes wasn't that hard because we had done a lot of coordination together. The other bin that, that was most common was what we just call reactive. And that means you and I never communicated, but you have a schedule. The Airwing had a schedule that they were going to fly overhead Iraq in just certain geographic regimes where there was always aircraft either overhead or on a very short on call mm-hmm. that if something were to happen, some critical event, we typically called it a tick, a troopin's contact. So I'm out in a patrol with my army brethren or my SEAL brethren. We get into a big firefight. I might have done no planning to coordinate with the air. But I know there's aircraft overhead. I know what the net channel is, so I know how to tune my radio in. I know who to call and, and declare this firefight. And then somebody kind of looks at everything going on and, and what's the prioritization. And more often than not, a firefight would be a high priority. And then what would happen is on that net, an aircraft would literally just show up and mm-hmm. say, hey, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is what I got. What do you need? And our planning would literally start right then. And so I'm kind of making two binary examples, a whole bunch of planning and no planning. Obviously, there's a bunch of layers in between there, but we did a lot of both. Right. We had a lot of pre-planned missions, but as you might guess, a lot of time was just walking patrols in the city or walking patrols in what was a very much like a rural, dense jungle just outside the city. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And aircraft that we had no coordination with ahead of time would show up overhead to help us in a difficult time. Wow. So the idea being is if you're prepared for the, uh, what you call the first one? Yeah, uh, pre-planned. Pre-planned, thank yeah. you. And you know how to handle a reactive, then everything in the spectrum between is some deviation or yes. derivation, I should say, of that. That's because right. Because you can just react. And because, let's face it, I mean, what's the expression? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face? <laughs> it was Mike Tyson, right? Yeah. So you guys have an idea, but then when it comes right down to it, a lot of it's probably improvisation. You have some certain standards. Yes. But then a lot of it's like, what do we need right now? And let's get it done. And even inside of that, if a, a section of Marine Hornet showed up that I've done five or six missions with, and I know the guys, and I know th- that improvisation is not that hard. Right. Sometimes I would get a section of F-15 Strike Eagles that flew out of kind of the Baghdad area, different service, different doctrine, different platform, and that improvisation is much harder. Then I'd get Navy Hornets off the carrier that, not all that often, but they would show up, and that was somewhere in the middle, because mm-hmm. I knew the platform, but flying off the carrier is different, the ordinance they have, the communication is a little bit different, and so even inside of that, that spectrum, there's derivations of that, just given your familiarity. The best part about where I was in Ramadi is probably 95% of all the air that I controlled were the Cobras and Hueys out of Al Takatam and the Hornets and Harriers out of Al Asad. They were there for about the same amount of time I was. We got to know each other really well. So even if it was totally unplanned, unprepared, when those airplanes showed up overhead, we had such a good working relationship and so many established SOPs that even if it was a just a complete unplanned event, we were far enough down the road that we could improvise pretty quickly. But if you, I didn't know you, we got to spend some time talking, and that's <laughs> tough in a firefight is is basic calm. So yeah. the stronger your relationship is, this is true in everywhere in business and life, the stronger relationship, <laughs> the, the easier yeah, the easier the working relationship is yeah, too. So yeah. And we saw that in real time. Did you have foreign aircraft at all that ever came to help you out? Yeah, we did. I think I had one or two times. I think we had a section of British GR4s, and then we had... God, I hope I got this right. The French flew an aircraft. I might be conflating that with, with Afghanistan. But yeah, we did British GR4s and um, okay. pretty rare, but every now and then we get uh, right. foreign guys there. Dude, sweet. 
So let's take a stab at this now for our, <laughs> our pure listeners. Okay. We're probably going to screw this up. But let's say you're on the ground. Let's do a pre-planned. Okay. Because like you said, if it's the reaction, you just kind of like, uh, as you said with your Jocko show, it, was it Boo Friedman showed up? Boo Friedman's my, yeah. Hey, what do you need, man? Yep. And you, you plain English. Down, plain English. Exactly. But since there is doctrine and policy and calm terms and everything else, let's pretend you are on the ground and I'm in the air. I've come off the carrier. I'm a flight of two. You're on the ground. And what was your call sign back then? My call sign was Lightning 6-1. Okay. So let's just for fun say I'm Rage 1-1, right? Okay. So we've already done some chat and some talk, and we know where to go. We've got some calm brevity terms and um, some expressions, I guess, what we mm-hmm. use for different things. But at some point, as I make my way through the tankers, up the tracks, get to where you are over Ramadi, then I know your frequency from, I'm assuming, the pre-plan. And usually you're there, right? There shouldn't be any need to uh, jump back and forth. Is there ever a reason why you're not on the right frequency? No, it's pretty uncommon. Okay. And we would have planned that. And you've gone through all your standard controlling frequencies. Okay. And then some point, you'll get pushed to you know, contact Lightning 6-1 on yeah, TAD-2, okay. which was a yeah. frequency you know. Right. And you show up and, and okay. we're talking together. Yeah. And I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this. Is that just an open freak that anyone who buys a Radio Shack VHF phone can I, Whether we can talk about it or not, it's been so long, I don't know. Often those frequencies had some level of protection, whether okay. it's sort of like frequency hopping or something. We had some pretty advanced radios, but there are other times too, it's a straight up open UHF freak. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So when I first get a hold of you, it's going to sound something like Lightning 6-1, Rage 1-1 on Tech 2, or yeah. whatever you call it, right? And you're going to say, go ahead. I don't yeah. want to just start talking right away. That's right, because yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to listen, That's but right. absolutely. You could be in the middle of something. Yeah. And then this is, I believe, what, the MN Papa, right? So I'm going to check in, and nice. I'm going to say something along the lines of Rage 1-1's a flight of two F-18s, mission number 5161, two by GBU-12, two by GBU-38, 500 rounds of 20 mic mic each and then at this point i might also tell you fleer rover whatever other systems i have and then zero plus two zero playtime and then i know in training we used to always do this am i going to give you an abort code as well or does that kind of come out later we did it in training all the time to be quite honest i never once briefed an abort code in combat now that doesn't mean that others haven't and you don't but i never did okay so to dissect that a little bit, and I, again, probably didn't get it in the perfect order, but I'm checking in with no, the mission good. number, the number of aircraft, the ordnance, the play time. Hey, there was an A in there. That was probably the abort code, which we just talked about. And then any incidentals, right? So if I've got, if it's nighttime and I'm NVG equipped, I'll probably tell you that. If I've got, like I said, FLIR and Rover, and then any other issues that you might need to yep. know about, right? So at that point, what are you going to respond with? And remember, this is a pre-plan, so we've done a bunch of coordination. What right. that check-in allows me to do is make sure that what our plan is, is, is I should know all that stuff. So as you check in, you're telling me what I think I should know. I'm paying attention to, is it, hey, maybe you'll say I showed up with you know two LGBs. I'm like, oh man, I was thinking Mavericks or right. GPS. It really is an initial verification that all the things we discussed those things are now available to us. Mm-hmm. So the plan is either going as we expected, or maybe there's some deviations. You might even be telling me, hey, look, you know, wingman's uh, laser is down or something. Oh, yeah. You're gonna alibis. Give, yeah, alibis, that's sure. right. You're going to give me a couple of things. But the bottom line is, is what that does is just kind of establish that how close are we to the original plan? What is it you're bringing for me? And my response to that's going to be, you know, I might have a question or two, you know, to, to kind of fill in. But more than likely, if you do it the way you did, which mm-hmm. is kind of per the doctrine, which is what I'm expecting, you go down the, that M and Papa acronym. 
my answer is going to be is that, hey, Roger, thanks for checking in. And then I'm going to tell you what's going on. So remember, you and I had briefed this ahead of time at a particular time and place. We're going to be at a particular phase line or a particular location or an intersection. And I'm going to say, hey, Rage 1 1, Lightning 6 1, currently established at phase line blue, pushing to the target in three minutes. Okay. That's something you should expect too, because we've planned the timing, the location, the coordination, and all these things. And really, what we're trying to do is just sync up. Now, does it always go that smoothly? No. It'll be like, hey, we hit an IED. We're over here. And like, right. oftentimes we're going to make a big detour and go, hey, I need you to get your IR pointer down this road because we've struggled with this. And I'm, but if things are going as planned, I'm going to give you an update. And so where you think I should be, where I think you should be, synchronize those two together. And now we're operating in the same sheet of music. And what we're both expecting is the next phase in whatever this operation is. If I'm going to do a raid or an assault or whatever that might be, you're, I'm now going to push you. I'm going to ask you to take your one aircraft and do this the other aircraft to do that and we're going to go into the operation itself and that's a good point because as we talked about on the ford air controllers episode with chile this is a fairly permissive environment for me yes maybe not so for you correct uh, but for me and i'm there for you let's make no mistake no and to be honest one of the real things one of the real advantages i never had to spend a lot of time worrying about you guys mm. man pads weren't an issue triple a wasn't an issue there were some smaller certainly for the rotors no it's yeah, not, we're yeah. talking a totally different storage with rotors right. but for a fixed wing a hornet harrier a strike eagle you know you guys are up at 10k sometimes even higher risk to you was virtually not it's just non-existent so i never had to contemplate hey what keep you at a certain range or distance fixed wing guys were, were very safe so i never had to think about that which was a huge relief for me because i could kind of put you anywhere that right. was reasonable and you would always be like yeah no factor i can right. do that so it's very take, different for the skids though yeah so taking a time out from our scenario in a world where again maybe the full the gap right where they're bringing sa6s also through i mean a high threat environment yeah. is a whole different whole different ball, ball game, game. Yeah. yeah okay all right, so let's just take a... Uh, That's another podcast right yeah, there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Start writing this down. It was designed to fly fast in that treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. All right, so if it's a sort of like a pre-plan, but we haven't coordinated, you might give me a TTFAC OR. Do you remember that off the top of your head? Man, we yeah. We can take a stab at this. So you're going to tell me what the threat is, right? Or the yep. targets? Threat and, and the, the target. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I didn't warn you. We're gonna no, you didn't. It's, and it's funny you said that because that is when we talk about school, that's straight up. That's the doctrine. That's exactly right. what I need to give you in response is, is that acronym. Listeners can judge me for all they want. I do not remember those details. And more often than not, much like when we're doing nine lines, we had truncated versions of that. What I wanted to get out to the aircraft quickly was where I am, where the enemy was, right. and sort of what the expected, what I need them to do somewhat quickly. And we typically truncated in those environments because the threat 
and those other components were so minimal that we didn't have to follow those components of doctrine and we typically got to more critical pieces of information. Yeah. You know, I like to think of it in a sports analogy. I mean, if you're a basketball shooter player and you've been taught to shoot the ball a certain way, well then in a moment where you get a ball quick and the time's running out, you're probably with muscle memory gonna hold the ball correctly before you're shot. And I think it's a little bit of the same thing. I mean, I mean yeah. You know, I didn't warn you I was going to ask you. You know, it's been, what, 13 years? Yeah. You don't remember exactly what it is, but you know that one of the T's is threats, and you covered that. One is friendly, so where you guys are, what ordinance you want, and maybe what ordinance you don't want. Yeah. And from what headings to command, which, again, is different based on threats, because if there's a whole side of the battlefield that's a huge issue to me, then you're going to keep me away from that. But in your experiences, it was mostly we ruled the skies. Yeah, and a lot of the work we did was overhead, and so that TTFACOR, you know, the kind of the truncated version was circle overhead yeah and other times we do keyhole cast we'd put hey i want you to hold alpha 12 or, or it i want you you know 10 miles north on a north south you know we would stack guys up and depending on the situation mm-hmm. uh, and the number of aircraft but more often than not it was hold overhead get your eyes on my location i'm going to make sure you know where i am and then i'm going to start working from there okay so without hashing through an entire nine line and we talked about it a little bit with chili what would be maybe an example call for, again, there's so many possible derivations yeah. of this, but let's say you need some kinetics yep. right now. What, what would be like something I might expect to hear from you? Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to try to do is explain why I need that. And so the phrase we typically use was tick or troops in contact. But what I want to articulate both to you and not just to you, but sometimes you'd be a radio conduit to the operations center. So the larger command and control structure out there need to know that the platoon I'm supporting or the team that I'm with or our current position is engaged in a firefight. And Mm -hmm. that word tick not only gives you, that wasn't just for you to kind of know that I'm engaged in a kinetic fight, but actually that restructured all the hierarchy and priority for all the decisions going on uh, and all the other non-kinetic operations. And it let command and control know that there's a real critical event. And that could mean we might need to get more airplanes there. It might need to be we, we readjust ISR assets. It might mean that in a few minutes, I'm going to be calling for a CASAVAC. But that word was kind of like the neon flashing sign, like the, the five alarm fire. Hey, troops in contact. Mm-hmm. That's not just for you and the other aircraft, but it's also, you're going to actually disseminate that to your hire as well. And everybody's going to know what's going on, which is really important. And then the first thing I have to make sure, even if I'm not in a tick, the first thing I have to make sure is you know where I am. I need you to know the location of, of our friendly position. And you knowing where I am was always critical. Now we had really good, you know, at night we had IR beacons. I could have an IR pointer. I had high quality GPS location, but really what was most valuable is that we operated off either something called a GRG or, or some sort of map that we were both familiar with. And I could tell you the block, the building, the location, the name of the street. I could say, hey, you know, current position is on the intersection of Sunset and Baseline on the three-story building. And because you and I have worked together, you know exactly where that is. Mm-hmm. And so orienting the, uh, yourself to me was is important. And I need you to, to know where I am and the friendly location are before I kind of move anywhere else. Right. Because you knowing where we are is critical. And I think, you know, we say it all the time, me knowing my position on the battlefield is the most important information that I have. So I can kind of work with you and then, right. then move forward from there. And this is close air support. And so the definition of that is you're close by. Now that's important for my essay because obviously I don't want to attack you yep. inadvertently. So are there certain things you're not going to say to me? In other words? Yeah. So I'm never going to pass you like 
my location with coordinates. I'm never going to pass GP, you know, I'm never going to pass latitude and longitude. And that's why I said earlier, hey, you know, we're currently occupying a building at phase line blue, you know, pushing east. Those missions, you're going to know where I am, but I'm never going to pass you information that in any way could ever be construed as to where you're going to implode or use you. So you're never going to hear a lat long from me. You're never going to hear a GPS coordinate. I'm never going to utilize sort of the GRG for, hey, this location and anything that ever can be conflated as to where I want you to employ. It's going to be, hey, you know, IR strobe or something along those lines. So some sort of visual cue or say, I'm going to rope or something like that. And you're going to see this big green line come out of my position. And I'll use that to kind of mark targets and things like that. But yeah, if I didn't make that clear, I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) Make sure that, and any pilot in the world knows this, I will never pass you anything that you could utilize to somehow, and it happened. I hate to say Uh, it, but it happened. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Where all of a sudden you hear my location, I'm going to pass that to you. I just want, you know, the friendly position, the enemy position, all the things we're going to go through in that nine line. Those are all important things, but never anything. And that's when we get to the nine line, that's why four, six and restrictions are are so critical. The things you have to read back to me is, you know, the elevation, the position and anything that's going to limit, you know, your order of advance or or the direction you come in. So getting back to the scenario, the first thing you're going to tell me is where you are. And let's say you need something, whether it's because you're receiving fire or it's just part of your objective. What's going to be sort of the next step for you to control me in yeah. a kinetic employment? What I need to have you, and Chili described this pretty well, the cast that I did almost 100% of is either type 1 or type 2. And so in type 1 or type 2, I've got to be able to see you and the target or at least one of those two in type two, and Chile explained that pretty well, but in these close, you know, one of the critical components of close air support is not just that we're really close, but it requires this detailed coordination, and right. we have to figure out, it's not deep air support, and it's not cast, scar, and arm recce. There's a whole bunch of components that we need to cover, and that's part of what the nine line allows us to do, but what I need to be able to do is make sure, can I maintain visual of the target, and can I maintain visual of the aircraft, so me as a fact can make sure that the aircraft attacking the target is not just where, but also oriented in the right direction, to release the right type of ordinance safely so there are no casualties to the civilians or friendlies or or anything else. If I can't do that or or the situation dictates of type two, then the aircraft can limit one of those two, but as long as you can maintain, you know, eyes and GPS and laser weapons help you with that. But what I really want you to know more than anything as we determine, hey, this is the type of control we're going to do, which means you now expect what you're going to hear from me. Type one means I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be watching the target. I'm going to coordinate with you very clearly, orientation, headings, things like that. You know, I'm going to be watching you and, and give you a, a very clear indication of, do I like what you're doing? It's going to help me. And then when I want you to release that ordinance. And that's really close control. I mean, to include, you're going to say, hey, I'm now pointing in this direction. I'm now wings level. Can I release? Right. And I'm going to be the one that decides and Chile, again, described this really well. Yes, you can or no, you can't because I'm f- literally watching you with my own eyes right. and figuring out, hey, the release of the bombs and things like that. And I did multiple type one r- controls in very close situations with the gun. And obviously the gun is something that you got to make sure that thing gun is pointed exactly in the right direction. Uh, so I need to make sure you know certainly where the enemy is, the elevation of the target, the location of the target, whether I give you a GPS coordinate, if I give you a, a grid, if I mark it with something, maybe some smoke. Sometimes we'd mark it with our own rifles. We'd shoot at the target and they'd see that. But I got to get you to tell me, I see where this thing is. I understand where the target is. I understand what orders you want. I understand the position of the friendlies, and I know which way you want me to come in. And I'll go do that through a nine line. Okay. And a nine line is, again, a more 
nuanced structured thing that we can then pare down as yes. the situation requires. Because when we were at Fallon, we all loved to go hold out at horse. Yeah. And yeah. Go through Chevy. Well, and the nine, yeah. Seven, the nine line starts with all like yeah. where I want you to hold, right. which way I want you to come in and which direction is offsets, which sometimes is critical. But when you're holding overhead and you're watching all this and you know the friendlies and what they're doing, right. that stuff all goes away. I don't have you at some offset position in some left or right direction. You're overhead. We've been working together. That's what I talked about earlier. You know the friendly position. You've been watching us doing this patrol or you've been watching us all on the way in and kind of coordinating. None of that stuff is required. We just literally just skip that. Okay. And that second section of the three sections of the nine line, that first one is essentially meaningless because I don't care where you are because I know where you are and I don't need you to come in a certain heading <laughs> or direction. Now we're talking about enemy position and what we're going to do with that. Okay. So you're going to give me some key things that I need. You already talked about the coordinates, the yep. elevation, probably the direction of attack, yeah. and then some fill-ins, right? That's hey, exactly this right. This is the yeah. mark, or this is the time, or this is the consideration. And so at some point, I'm going to read certain things back to you. Yeah. Right? So the criticality of the things that I'm going to say to you, the, the what we call the four, six and restrictions, that's the target, the elevation. And then like you just said, things that you have to know right. that are going to restrict either your, your run and heading or, or just components that are, are required. We don't always have them, but sometimes we do. You've got to read those back to me. And that's sort of what relieves the concern about, are we both on the exact same page? Are we both looking at the same target? Mm -hmm. Do we both agree that what we're seeing and what we're going to do is aligned? And the only way to do that is for me to tell you what I want you to do, you to read it back to me. In, in a way that I now confirm that I, you heard me correctly and that we're on the same page and me to say, okay, that is correct. And then, you know, you start with the attack and there's actually still even a fail safe in there for type one, which was even before you release and even you've done everything right, you're still going to say, Hey, I'm doing everything I, I think I'm going to do one last time. I'm ready to go. And there's particular, you know, we could talk about the comment in a minute and I still have to let you know it's okay to release right. your ordinance. Yeah. Because once you pull the trigger, you know, for a, you can't a buy gun, the bomb or, back. Yeah. Exactly. Or, and you know, there's this old saying, people. you know, the fact buys the bomb, you know, we would say in aviation, you know, the fact is responsible. Like if you drop a bomb, you can't, it's not going to help you sleep good at night that you say, well, it, the fact bought that bomb. So I, even if I did everything and said, cleared hot, you did everything that I asked you to do and ends up being wrong and you kill civilians or you kill friendlies, yeah. no pilot in the world is going to be okay with that. So it really is, we are in a relationship together that we both have a hundred percent accountability and responsibility towards each other. Nobody buys the bomb. It's your bomb off your airplane. And me as a fact, I'm not going to let you be responsible. So we're actually going to work together and we both going to, we both own everything at the yeah. same time. Well, Serious consequences to what we're doing here. Yep. But this is also warfare, by the way. All right. So you're going to give me some parts of the nine line. Then you're going to give me some plain English. I'm going to read back certain parts to you. And then at what point do we decide? I mean, if there's not a hard TOT in this case, there probably isn't. Then at what point do we decide when I attack? You're going to still direct that, right? Yeah, exactly. And so the dynamics of the situation dictate if I need you like immediately. There's a couple clues that I need you immediately. <laughs> One, I'm going to tell you, but my voice. Yeah, right. You again, you knowing what's going on and what we're doing and kind of seeing, you know, the type ones that, that I typically did were, you know, we'd be under RPG fire or, you know, 12.7 millimeter machine gun, you know, really heavy duty stuff. I can't sit here for 20 minutes and endure that type of onslaught from the enemy. You know what's going on because I'm explaining this to you. You're going to recognize this is, you know, an immediate attack situation or other times where I can say, hey, look, we think they're holed up here. This is something we're, and I'm going to indicate to you how quickly I think this needs to happen. You're also going to have a play in that too in your own mind. Okay. 
And there's another piece too, and I, I know it's a little bit jumbled, but I think it's important too, is I might have a really strong sense of, hey, I want you north to south because we're sitting off to the east. It gives me a really good viewpoint and it okay. keeps me out of the way. But you might be overhead and say, hey, there's a tree line off to the north. It's going to be tough for me to go north to south because I won't be able to see the target until the last second. Hey, would south to north work because I'll be on the opposite side of that building? That's your totally different perspective. I'm not just going to tell you what I want or what to do. I'm actually going to tell you what the outcome I want. And the pilot can often too say, Hey, I think I understand your intent here. You want this weapon. And the, would it help you if I did this instead and came over your right shoulder? Cause you could, so there's a, there's a back and forth too, where it isn't just you in pure receive mode as a robot and me just dictating the situation to you. You're definitely going to know the target for me, the elevation, the critical components, but that additional pieces is, is going to be a conversation back and forth. And if you're doing your job as a pilot, and this is what you get it earlier when I left being a fact and got back in the airplane, what can I say or do to help this fac get what he wants even faster by saying, hey, I understand what your intent. If I did this, it might be quicker and easier. Would you like him to do that? And I'm like, yes, good to go. So I may say I want you north to south and coming off to the east, and you may respond like, good to go. Or, hey, if I come in southeast east to northwest, it gives me a better view of the target, less, uh, you know, there's a building for skipping a bomb. Or, and, and you might offer me some information I don't even see because I'm ducking down behind a wall because there's literally people shooting at me, which happened to me all the time out there. So it's crazy. That two-way relationship is critical uh, for that. Okay. So I'm overhead. You're in a fight. I'm in relative safety, frankly. Yep. And there are certain terms I'm going to use to help you, i.e., if I know where you are, I'm going to call friendlies uh, visual, right? Yep, visual friendlies and, and contact. If I see yeah. a mark, I can say contact, contact the, the mark. mark. Uh, you might have put some smoke or yes. some... Uh, whatever it is on the target. And then if I see the target, I'm going to say tally, tally target. target. Yeah. Okay. So those words, visual contact tally, I know visual is always friendly. Right. Always. You will never say visual, the target. You'll never say contact friendlies. Right. It's always visual contact tally. Tally is the target. Contact is the mark. Visuals are friendly. So even if it's like a little bit jumbled or kind of crazy in communication, right. if we follow the doctrine, when I hear you say visual, even if it's sort of jump visual means, you know, where I am. And we would mark the target probably 75% of the time. And we would mark it with smoke. Sometimes we'd mark it with other types of fires. Often we marked it with small arms. We'd have 50 cals or 762 or even what I carried as a fact is instead of carrying just regular rounds, I had two or three magazines that just had red tracers in it. So I could mark a target with tracers if I needed to. So we would mark the target and you would you say contact the mark. Other times I could just say where the target was and I'd say what it was and it's the only, you know, vehicle there sure. or what. And then you wouldn't have to contact the mark. You could go right to the target because I'm skipping that. And so okay. it, it depends on the situation. All right. So let's say we've been through all that. You're fairly comfortable that I have a good situational awareness of the battlefield of what you need done. And now I'm arcing overhead. Let's say counterclockwise. Yeah. I'm rolling in. I got ahead of myself. I'm coming around the circle from the south and we're ready to go. And I'm going to say something like what? in from the south that's right and so that next step so we've both agreed and i've read it to you mm -hmm. you've read it back to me correctly right. and i'm going to literally say hey your readback is correct okay. in rage one one read back correct you and i both know we are both talking about the same target we know what it is and we're as close as we can to being confident that we both have it right but that next step is now i'm literally sitting there as a fact watching that's part of the reason why type one was required i need to see your airplane and it's, that's why it's different for two and three is i'm now watching you 
And I'm judging whether or not what you're doing is predictable what I want. And if I've given you a run-in heading of 180 and I see you arcing around and then turning in from the west, I'm like, hey, you're not going where I think you should be going. So your next thing that you do is sort of your last opportunity to prove to me you've got this thing in the airplane. You understand the three-dimensional picture and you're arcing around to the north and about to roll in saying, hey, I'm in from the north. Now I see Jello and Rage 1-1 doing what I think he should be doing. I'm a pilot. I understand that as well. Mm-hmm. And that's my sort of last piece of confidence. Like All this calm back and forth really did make sense to you, and you're now moving your airplane three-dimensionally in a way that exactly what I think you should be doing. My confidence is getting better. I'm telling the guys, I'm like, hey, we're looking good here. When you say in, I'm going to give you a continue call. Say, hey, you know, continue and say, hey, th- I like this. Mm-hmm. nothing else has changed and then you're actually going to move your airplane three-dimensionally and roll in on that profile to employ that piece of ordnance directed to the target and we're getting really close to that bomb coming off we have got a little more to do but right. you've proven to me we're dialed in really okay. nicely here how about battlefield obscurance scattered clouds other all issues? I mean, the time so yeah how do you see- buildings that's one of the things about being a fact we're doing a one specific example of type one. There's other ways around it. There's a whole bunch of different things that we could, again, talk for days on it. But in this particular case, I have to see you, especially in this really close scenario, this type one, ordnance can be released, the gun that's right on top of the target and friendlies are all around. I have to be able to see you. And what that means for me is I got to get somewhere where I can see you. Sometimes that's not a big deal, but a lot of times it actually means I'm exposed. For me, in Ramadi, nine times out of 10, it meant I was on a rooftop somewhere. And I was with my radio operator right next to me, and more than likely with the lead element, a platoon commander, a company commander, a squad leader, whoever the ground force commander was, I typically worked in small units, not, you know, battalions or anything like that, but, you know, a platoon would be on a patrol or even a squad would be on a patrol. I worked for them. I wasn't in charge just because I outranked him. I'd be working for a first lieutenant, and I would typically be right next to that guy. He owns the battlefield. He owns the dirt. I'm there to support him. So we'd be on a rooftop, you know, exposed, watching the airplanes. I got my radio operator to my right. I got the platoon commander to my left or the squad leader to my left. We're communicating. I say, hey, that airplane over there, he's going to come in from the north, heading to the south to attack the target. We got to be aligned, and there's a whole bunch of things that can get in the way, and you got to expose yourself sometimes to make sure that happens, and yeah. that kind of sucks, but that's <laughs> yeah. what's required to do this type of detailed control. And so if the environmental conditions are not cooperating, I mean, forget Ramadi, let's say we're having a battle here in Carlsbad in standard yeah. Southern California overcast. I mean, obviously laser-guided weapons aren't going to work, but nope. it's a whole different animal yes. if there's an overcast. Or even there is, and, and now we've got things like Type 2. We've got other control measures that we're going to put in place. Look, technology has facilitated a whole bunch of things right. that never did in the past, and that's part of the reason why there's so many different versions of control. That's why they created Type 1, 2, okay. and 3 casts, is that now, with, certainly with GPS weapons... And some basic understanding of doctrine, you and I can actually have the exact same conversation and the same level of clarity using a totally different type of control, and I will never see you. Hmm. And so Type 2 facilitates that. GPS weapons facilitate that. But what's still required is a bunch of communications back and forth between you and me in really close coordination Uh to allow for that, and a bunch of understanding and and education and training and preparation, and and you guys doing it a thousand times and us doing it a thousand times, to have the confidence, like, I don't see him. He doesn't see me. There's an obscuration. It's at night or any host of other things. Right. But your bomb's going to go exactly where I needed to go, or your weapon's going to go where I needed to go. We're talking type one in this case, but what you're getting at is 100% true. Doctrinally, it's the same, but there's a bunch of different steps in the procedures to allow that to happen. So I never see it. And you might not even get five, six miles from the target. You might be releasing a weapon way far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of coordination that happens that. We did that as well. I did a lot of type two controls. Most of my controls were type two. 
All right, so let's go back to our scenario, and I'm arcing around. Now, my wingman is not right next to me. He's probably across the circle. Again, permissive environment. Yep. So, Rage 1-1, in from the north. And so that's that call to me. That's your final call of, hey, man, this is you and I was the pilot. I've done everything I think I'm supposed to do. Right. I've done my final positioning. I'm now literally, when you say in from the north, you are rolling out, and you are pointing at the target. You right. are dialing in your gun sight, in this case, if the one with Boo, when we're talking the... 20 millimeter, or you're on a some sort of dive profile to release your bomb or, or whatever it is. And I'm watching you, and I'm watching the nose of your aircraft, and I'm visually determining if you're pointed at me or putting somewhere else. I don't like that. I'm going to say something, but if it's what I think, and you say I'm in from the north, I'm going to see that you're pointed. Hey, there it is. He's in the north. He's pointed due south. He's pointed right at the target. He's now where I want him to be. Now I'm. I've kind of got that final thing. Like, okay. I'm ready for this bomb or this weapon to come off off the aircraft. Sometimes, depending on the situation on the in for the north call, I would just say continue just to kind of give you a little bit of a run. Mm-hmm. But if it was really tight and really constrained, you know, the gun runs we did are like a thousand feet. There's not a lot of time. You might come back and be like, hey, man, I'm wings level, which is just sort of one additional kind of like a little sugar call of, hey, I'm in. I'm pointed. I'm kind of running out of time here. Yeah. And not going to change anything. If you like this, let me know. So the in from the north or sort of that last wings level call from you is like, hey man, I think I've got this. Can I do this? What you really are asking me at that point is, can I release my ordinance? And what I have to say is, Rage 1-1, cleared hot. I got to tell you, either that in call or that wings level call, it's time for you to get your bomb off or shoot the gun. And I should know too, I'm a pilot. I know how much time you've got. If I think you've got a little bit of time, I might give you a second. If I know it's going to be in and immediately in that weapons release parameter, I've got to come back with an answer. What I really want to do there is say is cleared hot, right. and then I'm just going to wait. And cleared hot means the bomb's coming off, or the the gun's going to light up, or the missile's coming off the front of the jet, and then we're going to watch that thing hit. And then right. we could talk about it in a minute, but that's really what you're asking me. It's yeah. my last final check. I like what yeah. Jello did here. We're good. So I say wings level. Can I not just come up and say Rage 1 1, understand cleared hot? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> Only one person in the world. There's a couple of hard and fast rules, and I appreciate going back earlier. One of them is I'm never going to pass you my location. I'm never going to give you anything that could be used for weapons on my position. Right. The other one is nobody is going to say the words cleared hot other than the controller responsible for delivering that message. So if you want to drop the bomb, Mm -hmm. you're never going to say, am I cleared hot? Am I hot to drop? Am I cleared to drop my... You're going to say again, wings level. Right. Wings level. Hey man, I'm wings, you know, and you might have some voice inflection in doing it, but I'm the only guy that's ever going to say that. Yeah. And I, that's kind of a hard and fast rule and everybody knows that. And look, if a pilot ever were to say that, that's a clue for me that this guy is not trustworthy. Uh, I cannot do cast with him and type one. It's probably not yeah. a good idea. For the record, ladies and gentlemen, I knew the answer he to that knew, one, but I want to ask it anyway, was, but, You're yeah, doing a great that, job of guiding me down the road here because it's been a while since I've thought about this now, stuff. That is, I mean, that's worse than kissing your sister. That, you don't use you don't do the it. words cleared or hot. Now, interestingly, you do an air-to-air, but in this scenario, and of course, you're wearing a whole different hat yep. uh, as the pilot goes here, yet you don't use those words, not just together, as you said, but even separately. Yep. Not hot, not cleared hot, et cetera. Period. That's All exactly right, right. All right. So you had already given the example, Rage 1-1 cleared hot. Wow, I even hesitated just saying it. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not, what are you going to say to me? I'm going to either say, like I said, right. continue means, hey, well, I if you think, don't like what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I was going to say, continue is if I'm going to salvage this. That's yeah. right. Or I'm going to say, hey, I don't like this. Either I don't like what you're doing, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be that I don't like where I am anymore, or it could mm-hmm. be that the enemy position has changed. Change, yeah. Friendly, so I can abort you. Just because I say abort by no means means that the pilot is screwed up. It's just right. the situation has changed. And even to something as dynamic as that, where you're rolling in minutes after the initial troops in contact, 
things happen, especially oh, yeah. in urban environment, you know, kids, civilians, situation. And so I still retain the ability to say, hey, Rage One want a board. And I'm actually just going to say a board. I won't even use your call sign because I want that A word out there immediately. Right. That's another word that you cannot take that back. That's a word that when you say it, there is no, oh, hey, never mind, keep going. A board is a really critical term. It mm-hmm. means we're done with this. No matter what's going on, that's going to kind of be a trump card there. And I'll abort you as I need to if I think. A, I don't like what you're doing, or B, the situation is now different. I, yeah. I don't think it's a good idea. Okay. And in the cockpit, as I recall, the rule of thumb used to be you roll in, you've got your hand near the master arm switch. You don't really move it until you're cleared. And yeah. I think depending on the weapon, you could maybe get away from that if you were fairly confident, but also if you knew it was fairly critical that you didn't want yep. to accidentally forget it. But you by no means ever in the cockpit get on the pickle or the trigger until, like you said, you're cleared. And if you hear abort, even after being cleared, again, things change, then you immediately get off and then you safe up and recover and dispense chaff of flares as required. That's right. And that's the professionalism of the pilots is I'm not going to be in there telling, hey, arm your switch, get ready. I'm not going to say any of that stuff. I'm going to walk you through this and you and I are going to work together. And when I say cleared hot. I'm going to trust the professionalism that your system is where it needs to be and you're going to release not before and not after and and when we need it. And that's what combat fighter pilots do. And that's why being a fighter pilot is so hard because the margin for error of that is milliseconds sometimes and you've Mm -hmm. seen it and the failure could be catastrophic if you get it wrong. That's like you said, this is war. Yeah. And if you had to be wrong, better to not drop when you were cleared to than to drop when you're not. And and I remember in training, I remember in training that was like, if you in Cass did that. It was like, you're done. Go home yep. and buy a keg at the old club tonight because, yeah. you know, it's almost like a blue on blue. And it, there, it, there, you know, so. absolutely, it is. It's equivalent. Okay. It's catastrophic. And we took that very seriously. And right. that's part of the reason too, even just how you're talking on the radio, I'm going to yeah. get a good sense of what kind of pilot you are just by how confident and how professional and how right. accurate you are with the doctrine, as opposed to like, man, I don't, this guy's talking and yeah. your reputation over the radio is a huge indicator of how confident I will be as a fact that you're sure. going to employ weapons, you know, a couple thousand feet yeah. from me. You can quickly tell the experienced ones from the nuggets, I'm guessing. Yep. All right. What's the difference though? You said in your Jocko podcast that you controlled some medevac aircraft. How's that different? Or is that mostly just coordination at that point? Yeah. In some ways that's just, so there's an administrative nature of that where it's not as chaotic in the sense that the environment is dynamic. There's enemy moving back and forth. There's firing and, and things like that. But I will tell you this, I controlled a couple of Casavacs, uh, casualty evacuations and two mass casualty evacuations mm-hmm. and probably the most emotional that I have ever been is working at one of our field medical facilities, we call it Charlie Medical. It's coordinating with the, in this case it was a C, a Marine CH-46 and I'll keep it quick, I know we don't have a ton of time, but just outside the main base we were operating where the medical facility was called Charlie Med, what's called a V-bit, a vehicle-borne IRD, basically just a huge dump truck filled with gasoline. Yeah. Rammed the outside perimeter of this building, detonated, uh, was, was essentially a fuel explosive, and we got this call, hey, we're going to get a bunch of burn victims coming in, National Guardsmen and civilians. And we all ran down to Charlie Med. I was a Ford Air Controller, but my, I had a corpsman, so we had some support there. Anyway, I got to the medical facility, and this train of probably 20 or 30 people came in with varying wounds, everything from like literally just a tiny little flesh wound to critical, they're not going to make it. I coordinated bringing in a section of 246s and they're supported by, I think, Hughes or Cobras kind of have a rotary wing support for that. And they're going to go from Charlie Med and Ramadi to maybe the 25 miles to Takata. But what the difference is there is you have this massive time constraint. Mm-hmm. And I remember vividly standing next to the senior medical officer, who's a Navy captain, I believe, or maybe Navy commander, 
And we had all these little kind of gurneys and tables and benches. And we probably had 15 people sitting there. Everything from just a minor blister to this person's may or may not make it. He's triaging them. He's saying, these two people have X number of time. This person and me coordinating with the helicopter and he's low on gas. And I'm, I'm talking directly to the pilot, much like it would as a fact, mm-hmm. you know, in, in cast. But I'm talking to the pilot. And what I'm telling him is, hey, we need four minutes to get these two casualties to your helicopter. He's like, I have seven minutes of gas before I will flame out on the way to TQ. <laughs> I mean, it's just stuff that I never thought I'd be doing. Yeah. I don't know if this pilot happens to be listening. But had one or two of those just very crazy situations that it's not dynamic because you're not in a firefight. I was there in like a green T-shirt and my cami pants. It wasn't like that. But as I'm looking at these people... And we are doing the timing of who needs to get on first? How long can he wait? The crew chief ran out of the airplane, ran to me. And I'm like, hey, you got to wait three minutes. He's like, we have three minutes of gas. We've used all of our reserves. And and watching how incredibly effective the communication and the relationships were to load this helicopter up in the right prioritization, casualties go off to TQ. At that point, you like never know what, then the next wave, you know, the next helicopter comes in, lands in the helicopter pad and you're kind of triaging with the medical team. And all you're trying to do is help is just be the liaison. Cause they don't know how to talk to the helicopters. Helicopters right. don't want to talk to the medical folks. And you're kind of stuck in the middle as a liaison trying to figure it out. The emotions that go along with that are, are pretty, those are hard. Uh, that was a really hard experience. I wrote about it. I have a, you know, like a journal that I kept on that. And probably one of the hardest days for me was that fuel V-bid that I controlled the CASA back on. Not because it was, you know, my life was at risk. It was completely safe. Uh, but how dynamic that environment was, man, uh, well, it was hardcore. You see people suffering and th- things are frantic. But yeah. I, I guess the point, and obviously I don't want to minimize that. No, no. Hopefully a lot of those folks did okay. But the point being is you are still the guy who's the conduit between we have people on the ground that need something. Yep. I have air assets that can help. And let's get it done. And uh, yeah. that's what you did. And your ability to stay calm and coordinate and manage that as fast and effective yeah. as possible is the same things. That's right. how you succeed. So that being the case, I mean, I don't, I don't want to add too much levity to this, but I mean, what was your, how did people respond to you as an aviator in their midst, particularly yeah. between missions? I mean, were you kind of an anomaly or were you like Santa Claus because you were always the guy. A little bit of both. That they like, hey, this is the guy who's saving our butts. Yeah. I mean, well, sorry like? for that dark turn earlier. It's just when you mentioned that, yeah, we obviously this, now this is rehearsed. We're just talking here, yeah. but yeah, the flip side is what you described is, yeah, I was, I was a prima donna Top Gun guy showing up in the battle of Ramadi work with a bunch of Navy SEALs and the soldiers and the Marines. And, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I was maverick, you know, they give me a hard time. <laughs> the truth is, it's just like with anything, you know, your reputation is built on, you know, how good of a job you do, how well you can do your job and, and how professional you can be. And we would go back and forth from just giving each other a really hard time of making fun of me. Like, what are you doing with a rifle and a radio? I'm totally in over my head to, <laughs> hey, I, I could control air. I could deliver a capability yeah. they simply did not have by themselves. And I think... I helped make a big contribution and my Marines certainly did to helping guys stay alive. And we killed a lot of bad guys too, which was awesome. And the power of aircraft fixed and rotary wing bring to the battlefield is undeniable. It's an outsized amount of influence that basically no other country has. And it requires incredible pilots and and incredible controllers to do that. And so I would do that as often as I could and they'd be appreciative. And then first chance they got to give me a hard time. Of course. uh, They would, which is awesome. (laughs) What you you expect. Exactly. Well, in that regard, you didn't miss your ready room too much. So, (laughs) well, dude, we're almost going to wrap this up. I do want to ask you one question. So for me, when I see movies like We Were Soldiers or Saving Private Ryan, it really makes me appreciate the choice I made. And I'm curious for you. Now, you said the reason you went is you wanted to feel like a Marine. And I'm guessing you had that in spades. But I wonder, did your time in Iraq, what did that do for you as far as your previous decision to be a pilot? Did it reinforce it and you were glad to be back? Or did you say, you know, maybe I could have done this and been here? I mean, because 
I've read there's a bond between troops that a lot of these guys come back. Most of them do okay, but some don't. And they look for yeah. that fix somewhere else. Some of them turn to drugs. Some of them turn to crime. A lot of them just go back in the military. But what did that do for you as far as your previous choice to be an aviator? To be quite frank, my factor reinforced that beyond a shadow of a doubt, without any question at all, I made a really good decision to be a pilot. <laughs> I dreamed of being a fighter pilot since I was a little kid. Five uh-huh. years old, I went to my first air show at El Toro. It got in my blood. With that said, the fact tour by far is the most impactful, the most challenging, the hardest thing I've ever done was that year as a fact, the seven months in Ramadi. You know, we didn't talk about it, but you know, my radio operator was killed. You know, one of the Marines on my team, my 13 man team, he was killed. My son's named after him. I was experiencing things that I had never thought about before and never expected to be experiencing in a place that I never imagined. By far the most influential thing I did and the most important thing I did, but I left that. I've never given one second to wanting to go back and do that again. I love flying airplanes. I can't believe that I got to do all the things that I did. And unlike, you know, my commando brothers, you know, the SEALs that I work with, they'd go back in a heartbeat. I did it. I'm glad I did it. Best thing I ever did. But that was all the time I ever needed to appreciate it. And I loved being in the airplane. I love flying fighters. It was what I really wanted to do. And that reinforced that. I think I was a better pilot for having done that fact tour. I was certainly a better leader and certainly a better Marine and a better person. But I didn't look back and say, boy, I wish I'd done something different. Yeah. Not even a tiny bit. <laughs> do you carry that experience with you? Uh, I'm sure you do. Yeah. But like, is it a daily thing, weekly, monthly? It varies. Uh, yeah. Certainly for the first several years, it was multiple times daily. You know, what my wife had to endure. There's, again, another podcast worth of material yeah. there. Uh, it was tough. Coming back, losing a Marine. You know, that army unit I was with, we had 30 killed in 60 days in the height of the war there. I mean, it was the unit that I supported had 485 wounded and 94 killed in our time there. Just crazy. Uh, I carried a lot of that with me and I still do. What I've come to come to realize, which helps me reconcile that is the best thing I can do to give value and meaning to all that loss is to just do a really good job and, and live a really good life. And I focus on that. I focus on positive things and good things. I got some dark times and it's gotten better. I had a rough, rough, rough transition there for a few years. My wife would uh, certainly, con- you know, <laughs> agree with that. Uh, but I'm certainly back on the, on the other side, but it's all there. You know, my son, I see to my son, he's, you know, Matthew Leon Burke is named after Corporal Chris Leon. And I'll have a constant reminder of that. The work I do now uh, is a constant reminder but it's positive because uh, you got to give value to, to that and yeah. uh, and give meaning to that. And, and that's what I focus on. But yeah, it was tough, man. That's it, awesome. It, it some tough times. Well, yeah, I can't imagine what you went through, but God bless you for doing it. And thank you on behalf of the listeners and everyone whose lives clearly you impacted. Dude, we're almost out of time because you've got another obligation. If you're willing, <laughs> I told some of the listeners that I was going to come and meet with you. And uh, you want to do a quick lightning round, uh, short of answers, course, and then we'll wrap this up. All right. So lightning uh, 6-1 is ready for the lightning <laughs> All right. Perfect. All right, so uh, Joe Kunzler from the Pacific Northwest asks, of all the aircraft you flew, that's actually my part adding to it, but if you had to go to war, he says, which jet would you want to fly and why? F-35, not even close. The Hornet and the F-16 were awesome airplanes, but that is a bygone era. Those airplanes aren't even close. Raptor's incredible, best maneuvering airplane, but the breadth of information, situational awareness, and capacity in the F-35, there is nothing even close to the Lightning plane hasn't done well in the media of late. Uh, recently, it's getting a lot better. But anybody on the inside that knows that airplane, mm. that is by far, by far the most capable combat airplane that's ever been built. I wouldn't even blink if you asked me to what to go to war in. It's the F-35. It's not even close. Roger that. Alexander Vaderimke from Germany. Now, we'll have to keep this one again fairly quick. Says, I'd like to know the big difference, and keep it unclassified, between F-22 and F-35 in regard to sensor fusion. 
The biggest difference is that the F-35 is fusing radio frequency, electro-optical, infrared, and laser. The F-22 is, is RF only, so basically just the radar. So okay. it's the breadth of information and the spectrum is out there. F-35 is way, way broader and deeper than the Raptor. Okay. One of our Patreon supporters, Magpie, real name Rob from Dublin, wants to know if money were no object, what part of the F-22 would you choose to upgrade? It needs out-of-band sensor, electro-optical, infrared, and laser. And every pilot in the Raptor knows that, and uh, it needs a helmet, so for sure. Do they not have a helmet? No. Crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, we actually have an F-22 uh, interview lined up, by Good. the way. So, yeah, it's coming I'll up I'll be soon. listening to CIS. Yeah, you know, All right. Uh, as pilots of complex, this is Alex asking, as pilots of complex weapon systems, you are given a tremendous amount of responsibility. I think we talked about that just uh-huh. now. Uh, and trust by your country and its people. Can you recall a moment where you felt that responsibility the most? And so, for Alex's point, I think it sounds like you felt it plenty on the ground. Yep. What about from the other perspective? Yeah, from the other perspective is being in Afghanistan and doing a mission supporting uh, guys on the ground. And I remember they were kind of doing an extract of basically grabbing a, a couple of bad guys out of a building and they were kind of getting overrun by a bunch of folks there. And we we're do, you know, really down low. And that was the first time I realized as I'm directly overhead, the target at probably a thousand feet in Afghanistan, which was crazy at the time yeah. thinking, Hey man, I cannot screw this up. I got to get this right. You know, this was the very beginning of, of that war and feeling like a little bit in over, in over my head, but realizing these guys aren't going to survive without us uh, or they're going to, their chances of survival is going to go down tremendously. So that felt that uh, I remember that mission talking about that with my buddy Scratchy. That was an interesting day. You need to write a book, by the way. We'll talk about that. <laughs> offline. All right. Francois from France asks if you could have done an exchange program, another one <laughs> with a foreign nation to fly foreign aircraft, which one would you have chosen? Why? Yeah, they wouldn't let me. Yeah, I've done too many good deals. <laughs> That's but, right. um, I think flying the Typhoon for the Brits, that airplane is awesome. It's a really great fourth gen machine. I did some work with that when I was on exchange with the Air Force. It's an awesome machine. Nobody's flying fifth gen airplanes from us, other than us. But if I was going to fly anything else, the, yeah. the British Typhoon is an awesome All airplane. Right. Man. Well, we, we have that one uh, coming so up by the legit. time yeah. this airs. It'll probably have already uh, yeah, aired. That's awesome. All right. Last question from Kevin in Atlanta, Georgia. Which adversary aircraft caused you the greatest concern if you'd been involved in an air combat encounter? You know, in my generation time, it was the Su-27. Right. You know, we're flying Hornets. The MiG-29 was sort of the big enemy, and we were pretty confident. When we realized that the flanker was out there in force and how good that airplane was, and it was patently better than our airplane and could do things when we started to realize that the su-27 and all the variants of that were the real you know high probability threat that that was a game changer for us chip i'm gonna provide you an alternate answer that you're gonna kick yourself for not thinking of as soon as i say it ready the one behind you yeah that's a good Yeah. It well, doesn't that, matter what it that, is. The that's a great is. answer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know how I The one that. you don't see. Yeah, exactly. for sure. But no, I agree with you. The flanker. And of course, the Chinese have got some crazy stuff coming out. Well, now, but, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and that was back in the day. During your formative times? Yep, for sure. Dude, awesome. Man, we got to wrap this up and I hate to, but what does the future hold for you? I mean, I hope you're going to tell me you're throwing your hat in the ring for president because it sounds like you've done it all, man. That's not happening. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stick with what I got right now. I'm at uh, Echelon Front with... Jocko and Leif and the rest of the team, uh, best job ever. Awesome setup I've got here. I could not be happier. So if you want to cross paths with me, it's going to be in the leadership development world. And uh, it'd be cool to, to do that. Awesome. Well, hopefully you can have some influence on the people that do get into the media and seem to want to 
tell us all the rest what they think anyway don't get me started I hope all right so. buddy well this has been awesome i want to thank you for your 23 years of service i want to kick your butt for flying the f-16 18 22 35 and everything else and dude you by the way might have just doubled our glossary tack p piss off jtar grg merc tick mn papa and there's a whole bunch more but before we let you go as you know from the show how did someone come up with chip for dave burke well, before I answer that, kudos to you because you threw out a couple of acronyms. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. So <laughs> sorry. You, no, it was good, man. Believe me, we uh, talked earlier. I said I'm not going to remember all this stuff. You, you got a great right. memory, man. And and thanks for all your service. Chip is not the most exciting call sign. When I was uh, in T45s in flight school mm-hmm. in Kingsville, I was getting ready to go out on a night flight. I had my helmet on a table next to me. I was talking to uh, another student. I bumped it with my elbow and it fell off the table. And I reached down to grab the helmet. And my hand hit my G-suit hose. The G-suit hose swung up in a freak accident and hit me right in the face and knocked out my two front teeth. Damn. I don't know how it happened. Nobody knows how it happened. It was just a freak accident. But I looked up and the student I was flying with looked at me. It was a night form hot. And he goes, you just knocked your teeth out. And I said, I oh, know. And my instructor <laughs> came over. I had my teeth in my hand and my mouth was filled with blood. I had my G-suit on. And he goes, you got to go to medical. And he walked away. And I spent the next two weeks walking around the squadron with these two giant holes in my face, two chipped teeth, waiting to get my teeth fixed. And it became chip. Uh, I look like the guy from Dumb and Dumber. It was, it's not cool. I wish it was something different, but it was. Uh, I got a picture somewhere I can share it with you. It was uh, no, not good. No, I don't care to see that. Yeah, it was not good. Well, so you seem to have a nice smile now. Are those your real teeth? <laughs> these are not my real teeth. Uh- <laughs> The two up front have been uh, cosmetically fixed. All right. Well, that might be the only thing I haven't heard covered on Jocko's show that I've got exclusive here on the Fighter Pilot right. Podcast. That's right. I don't tell awesome. that story often. It's embarrassing. Uh, well, nobody's listening to my show. Don't worry. Nah, so. That's not true. Chip, this has been awesome, man. I know we're going to have to track you down again, so let me know when you're in San Diego or I'll be up to Carlsbad. And, dude, thanks for everything you did for everybody, including for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thanks, man. I love this podcast. Hey, look. I love being a fighter pilot. Thanks for being the one doing this. I promise you, if you want me to back on, I'll be on. Heartbeat. We'll make it happen. I'll hold you to it. Right on. See ya. See you, man. The sky's the limit at the Bell Fort Worth Alliance Air Show, October 19 and 20, 2019 at Alliance Airport, Texas. Watch in awe as the world-famous U.S. Navy Blue Angels Flight Demonstration Squadron, U.S. Air Force's F-22 Raptor, and F-16 Viper demo teams and other dynamic performers soar through North Texas skies. Family-friendly ground activities include static displays and the STEM Discovery Zone powered by Lockheed Martin. And when the show is over, why sit in traffic when you can enjoy a free concert to close out each day? Enjoy Austin Allsup from The Voice on Saturday and the Scooter Brown Band on Sunday. General admission is free. Discounted parking and premium upgraded seating, family discount packages, souvenir caps, and more are available now through October 18. Proceeds benefit local nonprofit organizations. Details at allianceairshow.com. Gates open at 9 a.m. and performances begin around 10 a.m. That's the Bell Fort Worth Alliance Air Show, October 19th and 20th, 2019 at Alliance Airport. A tradition for the future. All right, man. That was amazing. Big thanks again to Chip for having me up to his place in Carlsbad and taking the time out of his busy schedule to join us on the show. Chili, you got name dropped there a few times. I thought that was an awesome discussion. Uh, What did you think listening to that? (laughs) 
you and I talked about this before uh, we had him in, uh, on for an interview, which is uh, he clarified a lot of things yeah. that I just uh, you know, touched the surface on when we were talking. Uh, it's a really good job. Yeah. But he kept talking about, you know, habitual training relationships. And you really kind of hit the word trust a lot, you know, that uh, I trust because I either train with you directly uh, or I trust because I know the training you have gone through. And then those key things that we communicate to each other uh, really set the foundation for allowing us to work together uh, effectively and to communicate efficiently and quickly to get the job done, especially when critical things are happening. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. And you recall from our days together on the staff up in Fallon, it was that we would have all these different tactics techniques and procedures effectively, right? TTPs. And the idea is you get so good at those that you can go out and execute, but when the chips are down, then uh, no pun intended, then you you really, (laughs) you know, you do what you got to do and you can resort to other methods or whatever, even personal call signs to the point of my earlier talk about that musing. But you can come back from that ideally and debrief and say, hey, here's what we did. Here's maybe how we could have done it. But did we accomplish the mission? And in the end, you know, it sounds like those guys were able to do that. And what an experience. I, I just can't imagine. I, you know, frankly, that's why I joined the Navy. So I wouldn't have to go do what Chip did, but he wanted to go experience that and good on him for doing it. Funny, he said, uh, I want to go be a Marine for a little while, and he ended up not being with Marines. I think he got exactly what he wanted out of that tour, which was uh, to be down there and see uh, from the other side, uh, get a different view of it. Well, and just what a pedigree for this guy. I mean, golly, he's flown everything. Now he's done that. The sky's (laughs) not the limit for him. He's he's got a bright future, I guess, what I'm trying to say. The uh, F-16, F-35, F-22, what an awesome opportunity to fly all of those airplanes. Uh, And he made a couple of comments, I think it actually might have been uh, on the other uh, podcast, uh, about uh, F-22 versus F-35. You guys have that perspective of those two airplanes. That's true. I was very interesting to hear his comments. All right, well, thanks again, Chip. And for the listeners who say get him back, you know, again, he was willing, and he's not that far, so hopefully we can do that. All right, man. Well, gosh, time to wrap this up already. We want to thank our Patreon supporters, including all of our new strike leads, Jeff Remlinger, Clay Meisner, Colin Lamb, Richard Hinkle, Aaron David, Robert Phillips, and Nick Draxler. And this is the part in the show. I want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, including our guest co-host, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So, Chili, big thanks to you, man, for coming back to the show and help us out as guest co-host today. Nicely done. I enjoyed the homework uh, to get ready for doing the show. Fantastic. Yeah, you're doing good work here. I love it. I appreciate it. Well, the show is growing and it's a lot of fun to produce and we're having a good time. So hopefully people recognize that. And, you know, it's fun. I hear from folks all the time. They just enjoy it. So we're going to keep it going. Uh, before we let you go, any suggestions for what we should feature on the next episode? Maybe some of those Russian planes out there. Ooh, Russian, huh? All right. We'll take a look at that. All right. In the meantime, thanks for being here and uh, we'll catch you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Check us out at our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thanks for listening.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.